0: Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day.
1: I'm a, all my day.
0: conflict between the Palestinians and Israel, which has reached a terrifying crescendo with the assault on Gaza, is the outcome of a 100-year-old colonial occupation by Jewish Zionists in Israel backed by major imperial powers, starting with the British and a century later with the United States. This century-long assault by Israel has one objective, to force an indigenous people from their land. The historian Rashid Halidi breaks what he calls the Hundred Years of War on Palestine into six periods. The first is the British support for Jewish Zionists during the British occupation of Palestine from 1917 until 1939. The second declaration of war is the 1947 to 1948 Nakba, or catastrophe, that saw Zionist militias ethnically cleanse 750,000 Palestinians from historic Palestine and carry out a series of massacres. The third is the 1967 war when Israel seized the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza and expelled roughly another 250,000 Palestinians. The fourth declaration of war on Palestine was Ariel Sharon's invasion of Lebanon and the siege of Beirut followed by the departure of the Palestinian Liberation Organization fighters to Tunisia and other parts of the Arab world, and the 1982 massacre at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps. The Fourth War against the Palestinians began with the First Intifada, or Uprising, in 1987, continued with the Second Intifada, and is taking place with the Israeli assault on Gaza. The backdrop to this century of war by Israel and the Palestinians Is the failure by Arab leaders to offer meaningful support to the Palestinian people. In fact, these leaders often colluded with Israel to weaken the Palestinian resistance resistance movement. Joining me to discuss Israel's settler colonial project, how it is being played out in Gaza and its consequences, is Rashid Halidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, and the author of The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialization and Resistance, 1917-2017. First, I just have to say that for anyone who wants to put what's happening in Gaza in context, I can't think of a better book. Um, You uh, uh, make the argument correctly, of course, that uh, we see variations in scale and savagery and tactics, but not in intent. Um, let's begin with, uh, on the eve of the Balfour Declaration, uh, only 6% of the residents of historic Palestine are Jewish. Uh, and, and I think uh, if you can lay out the importance of the backing of superpowers, First Britain and the United States in pushing through this Zionist project?
1: Well, I, I choose to start, thanks for having me, Chris. I, I choose to start this, this narrative uh, with the Balfour Declaration of nineteen seventeen because I think that the, the framing of the conflict as one just between Zionism and the Palestinians or between Israel and the Palestinians uh, is, is basically false. Um, of course, there is a national conflict there, and that's central to it. But without the external support that Zionism received from the British, none of what we have seen in the past century and more would have happened as it did. Um, British and later American and other external support were absolutely essential to the success of the Zionist project from the very beginning. So I start uh, this Hundred Years' War, this tale of the Hundred Years, what I call a Hundred Years' War, uh, with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which gives the power of the greatest empire of its day. Uh, the support of the power of the greatest empire of its day uh, to the Zionist project, calling for, in the words of the Balfour Declaration, the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine. And the Balfour Declaration and the mandate that follows it never mention the Palestinians. And I think that's essential. Removing the Palestinians, eliding the Palestinians, is is and has always been part uh, of not only the Zionist project, but of the project of the great powers that supported it.
0: You write the British Empire was never motivated by altruism. Britain's strategic interests were perfectly served by its sponsorship of the Zionist project just as they were served by a range of regional wartime undertakings explain.
1: Exactly. Um there are many motivations for the British issuing the Balfour Declaration and you know some of them that have been adduced are Philo Semitism or uh, Christian Zionism, the belief uh, in in the 19th century among Protestant evangelicals in, in Britain that the return of the Jewish people to the Holy Land was a Christian duty. These are minor, in my view, minor elements in the motivation for the British. The essential motivation for the British was imperial and strategic. Britain wanted to create a buffer to defend the eastern frontier of Egypt under British control. They wanted to do this. 10, 11 years before the Balfour Declaration. Uh, They also wanted to control the Mediterranean terminus of the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the Gulf. Um, Thinking at that time of a railway and later on creating in that space that runs from uh, Haifa through what is now Jordan to Iraq Creating a road system, creating a a pipeline, an oil pipeline, and creating a series of air bases. Um, So the British had these objectives in mind: uh, protecting Egypt's uh, defenses from the east by controlling Palestine and controlling the Mediterranean terminus of this short, this shortest land route uh, between these two bodies of water, which was essential, obviously, to their connection to their Indian Empire. That's what motivated Britain, and uh, that's what strategic motivations were also what led them to change their policy. At the end
0: of the 1930s, can you talk about the rise of nationalism uh, the, in historic Palestine? They had been ruled by the Ottoman Empire for 20 centuries, from the 7th century until uh, 1948. And uh, from, from you the, deal with that from the 16th century. Sixteenth century. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Sixteenth century. Yes. Um, uh, can you talk about that and 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 how it affected Palestinian identity?
1: Well. nationalism was developing all over the Ottoman Empire, uh, not only among Arabs, among Turks, among Armenians, among Greeks. Um, It was also developing among Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, which is where Zionism comes in. Um, It is is in Palestine a settler colonial project, but it is also a national movement uh, among persecuted Eastern European Jews. Uh, In the case of Palestine, you had a, a, a local patriotism, which over time develops into Palestinian nationalism as part of a broader uh, movement towards nationalist identifications uh, all over the colonized world um, and all over much of Europe. I mean, you, you have uh, similar things happening in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe. The rise of national consciousness demands for national independence and self-determination in the period before World War One, during and after World War One, And that that's what happens in Palestine, as in other, other parts of the Arab world.
0: So there's, a clear understanding. Uh, it's one of the kind of nice uh, layered textures of your book is that you, your family was involved at very high levels with this Zionist project, um, where we also see how they're saying one thing to the Palestinian leadership and quite another amongst themselves. Right. Um, but I want to talk about opposition uh, because initially the opposition is nonviolent, democratic. Uh, you. Uh, they form congresses, they have leaders, uh, and it goes nowhere. Well, the,
1: the opposition actually begins before World War I. The opposition is parliamentary. The opposition is in the press. Um, there's a little bit of resistance by peasants to um, uh, their 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 dispossession in different parts of Palestine where uh, Zionist colonies are established. But essentially, the opposition before and after World War I um, is, as you say, Uh, in the form of demonstrations or speeches, or after World War I, congresses and delegations to London, where the British uh, government is, obviously. Um, And petitions to the High Commissioner in Palestine. Uh, All of this, as you say, goes absolutely nowhere. Uh, There are violent outbreaks in 1920 and 21 and again in 1929, but the thrust of the Palestinian national movement up until 1936 is essentially demonstrations, strikes, boycotts, petitions, congresses, newspaper articles, uh, and so forth, and uh, it achieves absolutely nothing. The British are unyielding in their support for the Zionist project. In the the meanwhile, um, Jewish immigration is growing because of persecution in Europe. The Nazis come to power in Germany in 1933, and immigration shoots up. Uh, The Jewish population as a proportion of the whole goes from 17% in 1930 and 31 to 31% by the end of the 30s as a result of people fleeing the Nazis and not being allowed to go anywhere else. The United States has shut its doors to immigration. Britain has shut its doors to immigration. And so this persecuted population coming out of Eastern Europe literally has nowhere to go. Um, People who could and would certainly have been saved from the Holocaust are basically shut out of most Western democracies. And that's part of the tragedy Uh, These people are forced, in a sense, to go to Palestine, whether they want to or not, because it's the only country where immigration is unlimited, thanks to the British mandate, which says that there should be unlimited Jewish immigration to Palestine. And so this changes the, the, the demographics of Palestine in a period of six or seven years.
0: And you point out that they come both with educational levels and resources that most indigenous members of historic Palestine do not have.
1: Exactly. Um, through something called the transfer agreement that the Zionist movement negotiates with the Nazis, um, people are allowed to bring some of their capital and some of their property with them. And that leads to an influx, influx not only of uh, German Jewish population, which is highly educated and skilled and motivated, but also of a lot of capital. And so the, the economic balance in Palestine shifts, even though the Jewish population is under 35%, it controls more than half of the economy. 1935.
0: I want to talk about the duplicity of the Zionist leadership. Uh, Haim Weissman, uh, you write, for example, told several prominent Arabs at a dinner in Jerusalem in March 1918, quote, to beware treacherous insinuations that Zionists were seeking political power. Um, And you write, the Zionist movement leaders understood that, quote, under no circumstances should they talk as though the Zionist program required the expulsion of the Arabs because that would cause the Jews to lose the world's sympathy. This duplicity, of course, continues to this day, as all of us who covered Gaza and the West Bank, uh, we would file our reports, then watch the Israelis reflexively lie. Uh, But talk about this duplicity and its importance.
1: Yeah. I mean, it goes right back to uh, an incident that I, I detail in the very beginning of the book, where an ancestor of mine who had been a member of the Ottoman Parliament, the first Ottoman Parliament, and who had been mayor of Jerusalem and had lived in Europe, he taught in Vienna, he knew German, he knew about Zionism. We know that from his papers and from uh, the books and and, and 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 Vietnamese newspapers that he received that are kept in the family library to this day. Uh, he knew about Zionism. He knew everything about Zionism. So he writes to Theodor Herzl, in 1899, two years after the first Zionist Congress, with a full knowledge that the objective is a Jewish state in Palestine. And he tells him that, you know, we, we respect the Jews, they're our cousins, we understand your suffering. Uh, there's nothing more noble than the idea of the Jewish people uh, having a state, but not here. There's a, already a people here. And the, the interesting thing is not only this letter from this ancestor of mine, a man named Yusuf Liel-Khaldi, but Herzl's response. Which is completely disingenuous, which completely ignores all the points that Yusuf the Achendi is making, and then says in response to a question that he Yusufli had not even asked, "We have no intention of driving the population away." If you look at Herzl's diaries, he's talking about spiriting the population discreetly across the borders. We're talking in the 1890s. This is clear in Herzl's mind. You have to get rid of the Arabs to have a Jewish state in a majority Arab country. There's no other way to do it. And that, in fact, is always the driving motive of Zionism. So what Weissman is saying is profoundly deceptive in in the quote that you just read, uh, which I think is in the 1920 or early, the the very beginning, 1918 or 1919, um, because it was always understood that the objective was a majority Jewish state in what was at that point a majority Arab country. Um, And that deceptiveness has been, as you say, I think a constant uh, ever since Um, the idea of ethnic cleansing, which is something that was inherent in Zionism and which was practiced again and again in 1948, 1967 is being practiced today in in Gaza, pushing people into the south of the Gaza Strip uh, was always inherent in Zionism because there's no other way to, as I've said, create a majority Jewish state in a majority Arab country.
0: You quote uh, the Israeli sociologist Baruch uh, Kimmerling, uh, this term, politicide of the Palestinian people. What do you, what, what, explain that? Well, I mean, it was essential
1: to argue that the only people with legitimate rights in this country were the Jewish people. Uh, this is now part of the, the Israeli constitution, uh, uh, as of a law that was passed. In 2018, uh, uh, only the Jewish people have the right of self-determination uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, that's part of the platform of the Likud party from 1977. That's uh, part of the program of the current Israeli government. But it's always been inherent uh, in the Zionist project. Uh, if there were two peoples there, then why would the minority have a right to the entire or country or to most of it? Um, and this... Approach is essentially adopted by the British and is incorporated not only into the Balfour Declaration, but into the mandate for Palestine that the League of Nations gives Britain, which is the which is the charter for ruling Palestine uh, under under the League of Nations from uh, 1922, when the when the mandate is adopted until the British finally leave in 1948. Um, The idea being that there are no there is no Palestinian people. The Palestinians are never mentioned in the Balfour Declaration except as the non-Jewish population of Palestine. They're never described as a national entity. They're never described as having political rights. The only rights that are to be allowed to the overwhelming Palestinian majority are civil and religious rights. And this approach, which is a British imperial approach, as well as a Zionist approach, continues uh, pretty much up to the present day. Israel becomes a, a, a state, is entitled, to national self-determination and the rights that a nation state enjoys, the Palestinians, if they are even to demand these things, do it on sufferance and are only allowed uh, uh, basically a simulacrum, a, 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 a pale shadow of these things. I mean, you look at all the all the proposals made to the Palestinians, they're never for sovereignty, full sovereignty. They're for some form of autonomy under Israeli sovereignty. And that approach has been central not only to uh, Zionism and, and the the, the Diplomacy of the state of Israel uh, after 1948, but to the the approach of the great powers, certainly of the United States and, and before of Britain. Let's talk about the
0: 1936 to 1939 Palestinian or Arab revolt. It was I didn't understand until I read your book how bloody it was. Uh, I, the British, I think, if I remember correctly, sent in a hundred thousand troops. They armed Jewish. Militias, uh, but this came, of course, after decades of uh, essentially nonviolent tactics that had failed.
1: Well, the, the 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 spark for this is a growing militancy among young Palestinians, among middle class Palestinians, among Palestinians who see the, the extraordinary rise in Jewish immigration. In 1935, uh, sixty thousand plus new immigrants arrive in Palestine, which is larger than the entire Jewish population of the country in 1917. And there are articles in the paper saying at this rate, we're going to become strangers in our own country. Uh, And so in response to the the ineffectual leadership uh, of the Palestinian uh, uh, elites that dominated the national movement, and in response to this uh, complete unwillingness of the British to respond to Palestinian demands, uh, eventually a, a general strike breaks out in 1936 which is a grassroots effort. The leadership had nothing to do with it. The leadership was surprised by it. Um, the, the traditional elite leaders are taken by surprise. Um, the general strike goes on for six months. It's ended by the intervention of the Arab governments, which are afraid uh, that this would lead to instability uh, and and which are trying to do uh, uh, the bidding of their British masters. So the king of Egypt, uh, the king of, of, of Iraq and so forth intervene. Uh, and the general strike ends and the British send out a commission of inquiry, which decides to partition Palestine, give a chunk of it over to a Jewish state, from which are to be transferred, the term is transferred, i.e. expelled, the Arab population. Because even in that tiny part of Palestine, there wasn't a Jewish majority. And the rest of which is to be given to uh, Britain's client, King Abdullah. The Palestinians reject this. Uh, They want self-determination for themselves, as the overwhelming majority of the country, in the entirety of their country. And what the British are offering them is an insult. And so what starts as a general strike and, and uh, 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 unrest in the countryside turns into a general uh, revolt, armed revolt. The British lose control of parts of most, the, much of the countryside. They lose briefly lose control of several cities. Uh, they're unable to bring in reinforcements in 1938 because of crises in Europe and the need to tie down British troops in Europe. And because they're afraid to send Indian troops because they're not sure of their loyalty. Because so many Indians are exercised about British repression in Palestine. And so the revolt expands. And by 1938, uh, the British are in in a desperate situation. Uh, They begin to arm and train uh, 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 auxiliaries from the Zionist militias, whom they train in savage British counterinsurgency tactics, shooting prisoners blowing up houses over people's heads, um, the large detention camps, and so forth, all of which are the modus operandi of the Israeli army going forward. The people who become the first generals in the Israeli army, Moshe Dayan, Yigal Alon, uh, Yitzhak Sade, are trained by these British counterinsurgency experts in the late 1930s to help the British put down this revolt. Finally, after uh, the, the crisis in Europe is temporarily over with the Munich Agreement, uh, the British uh, uh, have reserves that are freed, and they come to, they flood Palestine with troops and the RAF, and they bomb and and uh, f- and destroy their way to crushing the Palestinian revolt. Uh, in the course of which something like fourteen to seventeen percent of the adult male Palestinian population are either killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled. So the revolt is crushed. The Palestinians are broken. thousands of weapons are confiscated. Uh, dozens and dozens of people are summarily executed. Many more are shot uh, in the course of operations after being taken prisoner. Um, and the Palestinians really uh, suffer enormously. Uh, their leadership is exiled, um, uh, going into the 1940s. In fact, from from the effects of the of the of the repression uh, by the British of this revolt.
0: I want to go into the Nakba. The relationship between the British and the Zionist changes on the eve of. World War II, because, of course, the British need Arab support, although they form a British, uh, the British form a Jewish uh, battalion or division. I can't remember. Brigade. Jewish brigade. 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 Jewish brigade. uh, 1948, uh, you have uh, Zionist terrorist groups, Ergun Stern Gang, attacking the British. They blow up the HQ of the British at the King David Hotel. Um, So 1948, the Nakba. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know, I, I want to end, of course, by talking about what's happening today. But let's talk a little bit about the Nakba or the catastrophe.
1: The British do, as you say, shift their position. Um, and they drastically reduced their commitments to the Zionists in 1939, because on the eve of World War II, they realized they're going to have to fight that war in the Middle East. And they need the support of the local populations, which have come to hate them for the repression of the Palestinians. And this goes far beyond um, uh, Palestine and the Arab world. It goes to the rest of the Muslim world, and in fact, to much of India. Uh, So you have the Secretary of State for India writing to the cabinet saying, this has become an Indian problem. We cannot continue this support for the Zionists. This is going to hurt us here. They they already in 1937 decided they couldn't send troops from India to put down the Palestinian role because they weren't sure of their loyalty. And so Britain does a pivot away from the Zionist movement, reduces its commitment its commitments to the Zionists, and makes a bunch of promises which of course they never keep to the Palestinians. Um, after World War II, the situation has entirely changed. First of all, the Zionist movement is now fighting the British, as you say. Um, and secondly, the Zionists have pivoted themselves, having been in their view betrayed by the British, their previous uh, uh, patron, uh, which had allied with them only for strategic reasons and which turned away from them for other strategic reasons, um, the Zionists very shrewdly are able to develop relations with uh, Washington and Moscow. And these become their patrons uh, for the period immediately after World War II, when uh, the, the British finally decide they can't hang on to Palestine. They're leaving India at the same time. This is 1947. Um, And they decide they're going to abandon Palestine. And they toss it into the lap of the United Nations, which creates a commission that uh, has a majority and a minority report. The majority report gives most of Palestine to the Zionists, who at that time were under 35% of the population. The Jewish population was about 33, 34%. The Arab population is an overwhelming majority. And yet the Palestinians are given just over 42% of Palestine, the Zionists are given 55%, and then there's supposed to be a internationalized corpus separatum in the middle. The Palestinians say, this is our country. We are the majority. Under the covenant of the League of Nations and under the charter of the United Nations, we're supposed to get self-determination. And so they reject the partition plan, which would have given most of their country, most of which they owned, Zionist land ownership was only about 6% at this time, to a putative uh, Jewish state with a small Arab state in the 45 or 44, 43 percent of Palestine remaining. Um, the new it, 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 as soon as the, the UN partition resolution is adopted, at the end of November 1947, war breaks out in Palestine. And the superior uh, 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 military forces that the Zionists have developed with British help during the Arab revolt, and uh, through the folks who had been part of the Jewish brigade coming back and joining into what becomes later on the Israeli army, slowly but surely, inexorably, starts to take over parts of Palestine. By April and May, this has become a rout. The largest Arab cities, the largest cities with Arab populations, Haifa and Jaffa, are ethnically cleansed. The populations are driven out. Uh, other cities are taken. Uh, the western suburbs of Jerusalem, were, which are were the Arab parts of the western suburbs of Jerusalem, are overrun in April and May of 1948. So by the time the British leave on May 15th, 1948, 300,000 Palestinians have already been made refugees. 70,000 from Jaffa, 70,000 from Haifa, about 30,000 from the western neighborhoods of Jerusalem, and tens and tens of thousands in villages uh, up and down the country. Uh, at that point, the Arab armies intervened. Um, flooded by refugees, the Arab countries are are initially, were initially very reluctant to intervene. They're forced to do so both by public opinion and by the rivalry between different Arab governments. And you have what then becomes the so-called Arab-Israeli war, i.e. the war between Israel and the Arab states in which Israel defeats the Arab states uh, 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 over a period of time. And another 400,000 people are driven from their homes in ethnic cleansing operations in the south and the north of Palestine.
0: The Zionist movement, you write, applied a highly developed understanding of global politics. Uh, later on in the book, you were an advisor to, in you know, I believe, in Oslo with the PLO, and you. No, in, uh, this, in,
1: in, in Madrid and Washington. In Madrid and in, Washington, I never had anything to do
0: with Oslo. But this is a problem even today: that the uh, the, the uh, inability on the part of the dominant Palestinian leadership to understand understanding the systems they were. Especially the United States and Europe.
1: Absolutely, um, it was a failing of the Palestinian leadership in the twenties, thirties, and the forties. There were a few people who had some understanding, but basically they were they, they were they were not they were not very uh, clear on some of the global uh, elements of power uh, that did, did often determined uh, uh, outcomes in Palestine. And that was also true to a very large extent of the PLO leadership that develops starting in the 50s and 60s, takes over um, the Palestinian National Movement in the mid-60s, and is dominant until the, until the end of the Oslo period, and at the end of the 1990s. And a, 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 a remnant of it is still there in, in Ramallah. Uh, to my way of thinking, these people's understanding, especially of the United States and Western Europe, is, is sorely lacking. Um, uh, unlike the leaders of the Zionist Movement, m- most of whom originated in the West. Um, or spent a great deal of time in the West. Um, people like Chaim Weizmann, who was a British subject. I mean, he was, he was an immigrant to Britain, but he, he understood British politics and British uh, uh, British society. Uh, Golda Meir, she understood American society. She, she was born in Eastern Europe, but she came to the United States as a young woman. She spoke perfect English. I once heard her speak. She was very convincing, uh, very authoritative, um, uh, very actually charismatic. Uh, but understood the society she was dealing with. And that was generally true of people like Herzl. Herzl was a Viennese. He understood European society. He understood European power politics because he was a European. Um, And that gave uh, the Zionist movement an enormous advantage. Uh, When you have people like Abba Ibn trained in Oxford, you know, born speaking English, uh, you have an enormous advantage. Uh, this is an advantage that certainly the Palestinians did not have in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and I would argue did not have during the whole period uh, where the PLO uh, uh, dominated the Palestinian national movement, because um, even though there were people like Edward Said or myself who knew Western societies, uh, we were not decision makers. We, At best, they occasionally listened to our advice, but <laughs> or unfortunately quite rarely.
0: Let's talk about the rise of—I uh, don't know any other word for it—Jewish uh, fascism. Uh, Jabotinsky. I think Mussolini at one point praised Jabotinsky as a good fascist. It's always been there. One of the first stories I covered was Merikahana in Israel. This, this fascistic rabbi was, uh, but Israel banned his party. I think it was in 1994. The Koch Party, um, and now that virulent strain overtly racist. It's all come out, especially in the Netanyahu government. Talk about that strain within Zionism and its political triumph.
1: Well, there there are two elements. Uh, One is the anti-democratic element, and one is the racist element. Um, The anti-democratic element was not uh, prevalent, uh, except in so far as it had to do with Arabs. In other words, there was a high degree of tolerance for democratic diversity in Israel, insofar as the Jewish population was concerned. Uh, The Arab population from 1948 onwards for 18 years was under military government. And so you had a democratic regime for Jews and a military government for Arabs. Now they could vote, but they had to check in with the the general security services, the Shabak, in order to travel from one town to another, uh, or in order to get certain jobs. So you had a police state, I wouldn't call it fascist, a police state regime for p- Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel for the first 18 years of its existence, and a vibrant democracy for Jews. Now, the strain of anti-democratic thinking of Jewish supremacy and of a willingness to cut make cut corners as far as democracy is concerned, or to completely abandon democracy, uh, as you said, uh, develops with Rabbi Mayer Kahane, who was assassinated at one point, but his thinking lives on in, as you said, the Kach party, and later on in the two right-wing parties that are central to the current government coalition. Uh, These are essentially anti-democratic parties, um, as well as being Jewish supremacist, And that that links to a a broader um, set of issues, uh, which I don't think have anything to do with fascism specifically, which have to do with colonialism, which have to do with a colonial, racist, colonial attitude uh, towards the Palestinians. The Palestinians are lesser people. The Palestinians don't have the same rights, or shouldn't have the same rights as Jews. Um, and the Palestinians either don't exist, or if they exist, they have to accept a subordinate position. Um, Israel builds itself uh, as a state that is both Jewish and democratic. And as one one Palestinian who lives in Israel said, "It's democratic for the Jews, but it's a Jewish state for the Arabs. It's a state from which they are excluded." In other words, in terms of certain rights, which are which pertain only to Jewish citizens of the state, Um, various rights that have to do with uh, access to land, various rights that have to do with access to certain jobs, and so on and so forth. Um, There are about 18 or 20 laws which systematically discriminate against Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel inside Israel. And that's not to speak of the millions of people over whom Israel rules without any recourse, except military courts, which have a 99% uh, rate of conviction. Um, there, there, there is no law, there is military law, there is no, they have no voice uh, in anything. That, any important decisions about their lives. We're talking about the population of the Gaza Strip, we're talking about the population of uh, the West Bank. So Israel is a state that rules over uh, a territory from the river to the sea, um, with privileges and rights for all Jewish citizens and a, a diminishing scale of rights, some for Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, Fewer rights for Palestinians who live in occupied Arab East Jerusalem, which Israel annexed after the sixty-seven war, and no rights for the several million Palestinians who live in the occupied territory, in the territories that have been occupied now for fifty-six years—the longest military occupation in modern history.
0: You talk a lot about the the repression on the part of Israel towards Palestinian resistance movements, the first Intifada, which I covered largely nonviolent. The Second Intifada was not nonviolent. You're very critical of the tactics used in the Second Intifada. You get the march of uh, return to, uh, up to the fence in the border of Gaza, where Israeli snipers are shooting medics and journalists and children. And, um, but you, you uh, make a point that in some ways the repression is harsher against the nonviolent movements. Why?
1: Because it's convenient to picture the Palestinians as terrorists and because nonviolence has the danger of winning the sympathy of Western countries. When you can put the Palestinians into a terrorist box instead of saying this is resistance to occupation or this is resistance to settler colonialism, which is what it is, of course, um, and can picture them as terrorists, which is something that really um, became most successful under, under Sharon, uh, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, uh, in, in, the, in the period immediately after 9-11, when he hooked Israel up with the American war on global war on terror. Um, if you can do that, uh, you can deny that they have any any uh, uh, th- that they should be a party to anything. Uh, well, they're terrorists. You can't talk to them. Um, obviously, uh, this is a, this this was a tactic adopted by by Netanyahu, who who subtly and surreptitiously was supporting uh, Hamas rule in the Gaza Strip as a means both of separating the West Bank from the Gaza Strip, as a means of sustaining and and deepening the divisions in Palestinian politics between uh, Ramallah and and Gaza, between the Palestinian Authority and between the Hamas government and Gaza, and as a means of avoiding any negotiations. Well, they're split, and this, this lot are terrorists. We can't talk to them. Therefore, no negotiations. Therefore, we continue annexation. We continue colonization. We continue... Uh, uh, dispossessing Palestinians in the West Bank, which is the objective of this and most Israeli governments, really since 1967, in different forms uh, over time. So, so the terrorism label, which again has been trotted out, uh, starting on on October 6th uh, with the, with the with the Hamas attack out of the Gaza Strip, um, is extraordinarily useful uh, for hoodwinking Western elites, which are you know largely. Uh, accepting of an Israeli analysis which elides completely occupation, which elides completely the oppression that's a necessary daily part of occupation, the violence that is a necessary daily part of occupation, and completely completely eliminates from view the fact that this is a settler colonial process to take over as much as Palestine as possible and to squeeze the Palestinians into smaller and smaller spaces if they cannot be pushed out of Palestine
0: entirely. Two points: one, Hamas was elected in. A fair election uh, in I think 2006, Israel imposed this siege or blockade. Uh, And secondly, the PA, as you Palestinian Authority, as you point out in your book, really functions as little more than a colonial police force. Let's let's talk about the current Israeli government. Many of the figures within this government have long called for the euphemistic term is transfer, but massive ethnic cleansing. Um, and uh, of course, the Biden administration has given the Netanyahu government a kind of not only a green light but is supporting it with, what ten or thirteen billion dollars in supplemental military aid. We already give Israel three billion dollars a year. Um, three point eight billion. Three point eight. And uh, so let's talk about this government. Are we essentially seeing? uh, an even more draconian version of the Nakaba. Um, but as you said, these figures are, were spawned by Kahana and the, this movement. Um, uh, and, uh, they have long, uh, advocated for, uh, removing the, not just the Palestinians under occupation, but even, uh, Palestinians with the Israeli citizenship.
1: Right. I mean, these trends in Israeli society include uh, not just Jewish supremacy on the right, but uh, a desire since the beginning uh, to carry out demographic transformations of the country. I mean, that was essential. You can't create a Jewish state in a majority Arab country without bringing in more Jewish, a larger Jewish population and decreasing the Arab population. It's just the logic of a Jewish state uh, in an Arab country in an overwhelmingly Arab country, um, uh, up until 1948. Um, and what you see today uh, uh, under this government that came into office uh, early, in this, early this year, elected in December of last year, and cu- came into power uh, after coalition negotiations early in, early in 2023, uh, has been an accelerated drive. For uh, the, the colonization of the West Bank and and uh, Arab East Jerusalem, um, and and since this war began on October sixth, a a desire to as much as possible push Palestinians out of the Gaza Strip. Um, I think this is seen. This was seen as an opportunity. Uh, the atrocities that were perpetrated at the beginning of this attack. Uh, by the attackers or by the people who came in behind the attackers um, were, were, uh, 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 gave the Israeli right an opportunity to carry out another phase of ethnic cleansing. Now, we don't only know this from their statements. We know this from the fact that American diplomacy played, in my view, a disgraceful role in trying to convince both the Egyptian and the Jordanian governments to take in populations that Israel would displace. Would kick out of the Gaza Strip and possibly also the West Bank. Um, we know this not only from the angry rejections by the Egyptian government and the Jordanian government and the Saudi government and every other Arab government of these ideas, uh, 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 and from the retractions by the Biden administration as soon as they saw that angry reaction. We know that from the same uh, funding request that the Office of Manage- Management and Budget put before Congress on the 20th of, of October for 13 or 14 billion dollars for israel buried in that on page 40 is a, a request for support for migration including people leaving the gaza strip there are various uh, there are various uh, uh, clauses in that which show that the us government was party to an israeli plan to expel populations from the gaza strip as everybody in the arab world knows and everybody in the world should know when israel expels Palestinians from Palestine, they never are allowed to return. And the Egyptian and the Iranian governments understood this perfectly, and they were not going to go along with this. And they treated Blinken with the contempt that he deserved when he tried to peddle this idea to them. And the United States eventually retreated from that. And the president has repeatedly said, now, since then, or we will not accept the expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. The U.S. government was privy to, party to, complicit in an Israeli plan to do just that. In the first week or so of this war, as is evidenced by the budget request put before Congress on the 20th of October. You can go to page 40 of it, have a look. It's it's unequivocal. The United States was asking for money for operations outside of Gaza. And anybody kicked out of Palestine ever by Israeli ethnic cleansing is not allowed to return. That's the whole this is not this is not in other words a temporary measure nor was it meant by Israel to be a temporary measure. You can read what the Israeli intelligence ministry said. You can read what various Israeli ministers have said. Uh, the intention was to ethnically cleanse as much as possible of the Gazan population. Uh, since then, the, 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 those ambitions have been reduced because the Arab governments wouldn't go along and the United States pulled back. And now what seems to be intended is to squeeze the population of the Gaza Strip into a smaller and smaller part. Uh, of that, of that very tiny 20 mile long area.
0: Well, that creates a humanitarian crisis. Uh, Gaza already is one of the most populated spots on the planet. Uh, very high unemployment rate, especially among the young, I think over 50%. Half the population is under the age of 18. Um, it, 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 if they, they, it's clear that not much is left in Northern Gaza, but they bomb the South as well. They've Yunis, uh, one of the cities in the south, half of the city has been declared a free-fire zone. Uh, they have not, uh, they've killed far more UN workers than they've killed Hamas militants, as far as I can tell. Um, is the idea to create such an appalling humanitarian crisis that enough pressure can be put on the Sisi government in Egypt because these Palestinians in Gaza would be pushed out into the Egyptian Sinai, where do you see it going? I mean, certainly The true believers, these fanatical Zionists and bigots in the Netanyahu government, this has long been their dream. They have called for this for decades.
1: Right. Well, they're also engaging in small-scale ethnic cleansing in the occupied West Bank, where about 15 or 16 small communities have been forced to leave. Um, Two or 3,000 people have now been driven from their homes in the area south and east of Hebron and in the Jordan River Valley by uh, armed Zionist uh, settlers uh, backed by Israeli troops um, in a wave of ethnic cleansing, which these people argue is necessary and and correct, and uh, the the realization of one of their dreams, which is to make the West Bank as free as possible of Palestinians, even if they can't drive them into Jordan because the Jordanians have now moved troops to the border to prevent that and have very clearly said, we will under no circumstances allow you to do this. Um, pushing them into smaller and smaller areas of the West Bank and stealing their land and taking over more and more of the West Bank serves the same purpose. As far as Gaza is concerned, I think uh, it's not clear where this is going to go. We're uh, in the middle at the time that we record this of a truce, of a very short term, four day truce, even if it's extended. Um, the intention of the Israeli military and the Israeli government is to continue the war into the south southern part of Gaza. How they intend to do that without more phenomenally high casualty tolls among the civilian population is hard to hard to imagine. Um, they've already killed probably as many as twenty thousand people the 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 Gazan authorities say fourteen thousand eight hundred have been killed, but there are apparently many many hundreds, perhaps thousands uh buried under the rubble of their homes and of of, of UN schools and of other buildings destroyed in this mad uh, attack on the population of Gaza. I mean, the claim that the objective is to kill Hamas militants is belied by the fact that dozens and dozens of United Nations schools have been hit. Well, they had tunnels underneath. Uh, That's not an excuse for destroying a school full of refugees, which is what's happened again and again and again and again. Uh, or there was one Hamas militant on the ground floor, so we destroy a twelve story building and kill everybody inside um, again, uh, under any 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 reading of international humanitarian law, this is absolutely outrageous it's completely accepted by the United States and Western governments, so they are, to my way of thinking, complicit in a, a litany of war crimes. Uh, but it is the policy of Israel clearly to inflict he- as much suffering as possible on the Gazan population, presumably to make them pay for the defeat that Hamas inflicted uh, on the Israeli army and for the suffering of Israeli civilians thereafter, Uh, and uh, also presumably to push them uh, into, ideally, from an Israeli perspective, leaving the Gaza Strip and going to Egypt, and if that's not possible, squeezing them into a smaller and smaller area uh, of the Gaza Strip. I don't know what will be the outcome of this. Uh, People will try and return to the northern part of Gaza. Some have already tried to do so. There is apparently a large population there. There are relief supplies going into the north um, to to succor the, the 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 population that remains there. Uh, and Gaza City is the largest urban uh, 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 built up urban area in the Gaza Strip. That's where the largest group of, pa- of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip used to live. Uh, where they're going to go and where they're going to live is just impossible to foresee at this stage.
0: I just want to close by asking why both within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party there is such blind support for the Netanyahu government. Where, where does it come from? It's, I, I, I don't know that it's in our strategic interest to alienate the Muslim world at this level. Uh, it'll take us years to regain any kind of trust uh, th- throughout the Arab world and the Muslim world. But where does, what is its engine? Where does it, why is it happening?
1: That's a very hard question to answer. And I think that it has multiple answers. I think that, first of all, there is a difference between the party leadership in the Democratic Party and the the base. Um, and there's a difference between Democrats and Republicans. Dem- Republicans are much, much more supportive of Israel. This partly may be due to Christian Zionism, to the zeal with which some evangelicals look upon the return of the Jewish people uh, to the Holy Land. Um, it may have to do with the um, the appreciation for muscular, colonial, racist aggressiveness that Israel displays on the part of some Republicans. Um, at the top, however, uh, of both parties, I think it has to do with the fact that people of a certain generation were led to believe things that Israel wanted them to believe uh, in a time in the 60s and 70s and 80s when, you know, we're talking about a gerontocracy, you know. Look at, look at the leadership in the Senate, look at the leadership, uh, look at the president. These are people whose views were formed in the 60s and 70s when the only narrative available was an Israeli narrative. So they believe everything the Israelis tell them, whatever fairy tales they're led to believe, um, they swallow uh, hook, line, and sinker. The, the 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 difference is a generational difference, and the difference is between the bases of the two political parties. The Democratic Party has a very broad and disparate base and most elements of that base are much more skeptical of Israeli claims and are much more critical of Israel than is the Democratic Party leadership. So the president, the people around him, the leadership in the House and the Senate are solidly pro-Israel in the Democratic Party as in the Republican Party. The difference lies in the base. If you look at the components unions. Uh, the, the, the postal workers have come out for a ceasefire in opposition to the position of the Biden administration. Uh, uh, pastors of black churches put a, a full page ad in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago demanding a ceasefire. Uh, black intellectuals, uh, uh, Native American intellectuals, uh, uh, Hispanic intellectuals are all much more critical of Israel, uh, especially the younger ones. Um, than are their elders or than are Republicans as a general as a general rule um, and this is not just true of young uh, black students or young Latino students or, or young Arab or Muslim students it's also true of many young Jewish students um, you look at college campuses and Jewish voice for peace um, is a is a central component of the drives for divestment of these universities' assets from companies that support the Israeli occupation, uh, and of Palestinian rights generally. Um, so this is a, there's a generational divide, even among Republicans, by the way, but especially among Democrats, um, which shows that even though there's a high degree, in my view, of brainwashing among the older generation, I mean, people who believe that the movie Exodus is an accurate portrayal of reality, which is to say a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, they, have, they don't know better to be frank, whereas younger people have a much better access to information than their elders. They do not trust or pay any attention to the mainstream corporate media, which is full of lies as far as they're concerned. And as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the picture that is given uh, by the American mainstream media is far, far less diverse than the picture given by the Israeli media. Uh, uh, I mean, I read the New York Times in the morning and I read Haaretz or the Israel uh, Times of Israel or Ynet, Yediot's English language service. Yediot, I don't know. There's more disparity and more critical thinking in the Israeli press than in the Washington Post and the New York Times or on CNN or on MSNBC. So, uh, and young people know that, and they have access to through social media and through other uh, 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 other forms to, frankly, information that their elders, by and large, just don't even know exists.
0: It's money too. I mean, the uh, APAC just announced that they're going to spend a hundred million dollars to defeat Rashida Talib and a few others who have called for a ceasefire. They're major donors. I mean, the the and and these powerful. We've seen these billionaire hedge fund owners at Harvard and Columbia and UPenn use that the power of the money. I mean, the the response on the part of the presidents of. Harvard and UPenn, is—they've just grovelled before these. Of course, they don't run the universities; the board of trustees run the universities. But it's also the the weight of that kind of money and the fact that we live in a system—a political system of legalized bribery. Exactly. I
1: mean, I would say that this is true right across all of the centers of power in our society. I mean, the politicians are bought and so, bought and paid for. Um, they 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 can only exist with donations uh, that. Finance their political campaigns, from the president on down to you know city council members. Um, that's true of corporations. Uh, that's true of, of universities. That's true of the art world. That's true. You know, they're dependent on donors, um, and it 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 has it has played itself out in universities in a in a in a quite terrible way. Um, the concerns of Jewish students and their understandable worry about anti semitism has been conflated with their concerns about Palestinian ad- advocacy. And universities have been extremely solicitous of that. Palestinian and pro-Palestinian students, who include Jewish students and minority students and, and Arab students, uh, have been treated in a relatively cavalier fashion. And if you look around the country, you have had a, 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 a Palestinian child murdered in the Chicago suburbs because he was Palestinian or Muslim. You've had three Palestinian students attacked in Vermont a couple of days ago because they were wearing kafis. You've had a man shot outside a mosque in Rhode Island. And you've had a Jewish man who knocked to the ground and killed in a demonstration in Los Angeles. So you've had four or five incidents of violence, three or four of which are against either Palestinians or people supporting the Palestine cause or Muslims. And yet the solicitude of the university, which is Understandable and legitimate for the concerns of some Jewish students does not extend to other students, including Jewish students, who feel put upon by the fact that not only does the government blindly support Israel, not only does the media blindly support Israel, not only is there a general atmosphere in corporations we won't hire this person if they signed a petition in support of Palestine, but the university administrations are hostile to them, uh, and so they 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 are they feel unprotected. Students who are supportive of Palestine, which in many campuses are majority of students, uh, at, at at Columbia, at Brown, at many other universities, resolutions uh, in support of divestment from companies that support the Israeli occupation passed with overwhelming majorities, and I think that's a democratic indication of where a lot of student sentiment was when those when those when those votes took place, sometimes several years ago. But if you look at many campuses. The support for Palestinian rights is at least as great, if not greater, than support for Israel uh, today, even after after the shock of the attacks of the 6th of October, when there was enormous sympathy uh, uh, in American society generally for Israelis because of the the huge number of of Israeli civilian casualties, Uh, as many as 800, perhaps more, Israeli civilians were killed just at the beginning. So there was enormous sympathy. But that... That has not that 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 has not lasted in view of the atrocities being committed in Gaza. People say 800 civilians, 15,000 civilians. Well, they're all civilians. Children are children, unless you have a racist view, which is that some children are more valued than other children. Some civilians are more valued than other civilians.
0: Well, at Columbia where you teach, didn't they outlaw? Uh... Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voices for Peace. They outlawed those groups, right?
1: Yes, they banned them both. They, they withdrew their, uh, their right to have events and uh, their university support. That's correct. Uh, for the first semester.
0: Isn't this just a close, the, because they can't win, I'm talking about the Zionists, they can't really win the argument? Uh,
1: there's an argument that anti-Semitism is the refuge of scoundrels. And unfortunately, that is what's happening now. There is real virulent anti- anti-Semitism in American society, most of it on the right. And there's some anti-Semitism, certainly, in, in, in some of the fringes of support for Palestine, but Palestinian rights. But in fact, given that they actually can't win the argument, how do you justify 56 years of occupation? What can you say to justify 56 years of occupation? What can you say to justify no rights for Palestinians in the occupied territories? What can you say to justify the ongoing, incessant colonization and appropriation and dispossession? going on in the West. But there's nothing you can say. There's no arguments that justify that. There no, unless you say Jewish supremacy and absolute right and God gave this land to us. I mean, say things like that that are not acceptable to most college students. So you shut down the debate by saying, well, they're anti-Semites and their slogans are, are genocidal, which is actually what a university administrator at Columbia said, that the slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free is genocidal. It's part of, of the laws of the state of Israel. It's the platform of the Liquid party that f- from the sea to the Jordan, there will only be Israeli sovereignty. That's the, that was the platform of the Liquid party in 1977. So a bunch of students are hollering uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And the Israeli government actually is instantiating in law, in its constitution, that from the river to the sea, there will only be Jewish uh, uh, sub- the, uh, the only sovereignty will be Jewish sovereignty. I mean, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, and this lot are persecuted and prosecuted, not prosecuted, persecuted uh, for their beliefs. And uh, on the other hand, you have an Israeli state supported by people in the United States, which is which is made part of its of its constitutional laws, uh, a a provision to that effect. Uh, So, I mean, we're operating, obviously, at Columbia and other university campuses. in an unfavorable environment, but in a situation where there is enormous support for Palestinian rights across American society, especially among young people and minorities, Um, but among many right-thinking people who can see through the hype and the cant and the hypocrisy and the lies of the mainstream media and the framing of the mainstream media and of our government, which is on, I mean, you listen to President Biden and it, it sounds like he's reading from an Israeli teleprompter. Line after line after line are lines that you hear from Netanyahu, or you hear from his ministers, or you hear from Israeli propagandists. Line after line after line in the things that the president says from the beginning of this war until today, crafted in in Tel Aviv, crafted in Jerusalem. Tel Aviv is where the defense ministry is. Um, And so uh, we're operating in an unfavorable environment, but I would argue that people who, for example, want a ceasefire and do not want Israel to continue its ethnic cleansing of Gaza and its massacre of a part of its population. Um, Support for that is overwhelming, according to polls. Uh, Overwhelming majority of Democrats and large majorities of Americans oppose that Israeli Biden policy of war until whenever Israelis have decided the war is over. Uh, Hamas is destroyed, uh, in their view.
0: I just want to say that when those students chant from the river to the sea they're talking about equal rights for everyone when netanyahu uses that term he's talking about jewish or israeli supremacy right that was rashid halidi the edward Said professor of modern arab studies at columbia university and the author of the hundred years war on palestine which is probably the best book for putting the current conflict in context I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com.